I think people think that you have to eat carbs to replenish carbs, but actually through the process of gluconeogenesis, not only recycling, say, lactate that you produce within the body from carbohydrates and making that back into glycogen, but you can also make new glycogen from, for example, um, glycerol um, and proteins as well. If you did one or two weeks of ketosis every couple of months or every month, for example, or even cyclical keto where you eat keto during the week and then not at the weekends, like what is the minimum dose threshold, let's just call it, for being in ketosis that's going to give you the adaptations that you're looking for? And I, I guess my answer to that would be, well, it depends what adaptations you're looking for. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Simland, and our guest today is Brianna Stubbs. Brianna has a PhD in metabolic physiology from the University of Oxford, and she was a professional rower for the rowing team of Great Britain. She's a two-time champion at the World Rowing Championships. Currently, she's the leading researcher at HVM, which is a company that produces performance supplements for the ketogenic diet. Rihanna, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and we met at the Metabolic Health Summit as well a few weeks ago. And Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great meeting. It's great to see people from like um, basic science background, company backgrounds, and just so many people who have had great experiences um, doing a lot of self-experimentation with the ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting coming together. And I think, I mean, I've been to a lot of science meetings before and the like type of discussion at the Metabolic Health Summit was so different because there's this immediately obvious um, impact from the people there who have actually had their lives changed by following this kind of diet. So it was a really cool meeting and um, cool to cool link up there. Yeah, it is. It's, you, you actually get to meet all these people who are doing these different things, which you, who you wouldn't like in the real life, you wouldn't actually meet on like a daily basis. So it's a cool, yeah. cool, cool. It's cool funny. I, I, I get like way more starstruck by scientists than I do by I don't know, like sports people or yeah. like, because I'm, you know, I am reading their papers all the time and you spend a lot of time thinking, well, how these people are so clever. And then you get to meet them in person and ask them your questions. So um, I'd really recommend to anyone um, going to a meeting like that if they get a mm. chance. Yeah, for sure. And uh, speaking of like interesting backgrounds, then your own background is also very interesting and uh, like very fascinating. So can you talk about how did you get into the field of like performance enhancement? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, sure, it was, it was kind of random. Um, I grew up, my dad was in the British military. And so he was always doing sort of like crazy physical challenges. And so um, he was in the first ever Atlantic rowing race across um, from Tenerife, which is on the European side, over to Barbados, which is in the Caribbean. And that was when I was seven. So I always grew up around this kind of uh, super adventurous and um, aspirational, I guess, um, background. And so when I was 12, my dad um, was applying for another ocean row and he took me on one of his sort of uh, practice uh, weekends, which was across the English Channel. So when I was 12, I became the youngest person to, to be part of a crew that rowed across from England over to France. Um, and that really kind of set the tone for what I went on to do like throughout my teens. Um, I'd got into rowing. Uh, I'd moved up from being in the British under 16 team through into the junior team and then the under 23 team. So I was always training really hard, um, specifically in rowing, because I guess that's what I'd grown up around. Um, was also pretty academic and really into science. And I guess when you're in your teens and you're like, oh, I, I kind of like science and I like helping people, what am I gonna do? I'll be a doctor. So I actually went to Oxford University in England to study medicine. Um, and so I, did, I was doing my course there and I saw this 
uh, like kind of paper ad up in one of our on one of our notice boards, and it was advertising for um, rowers to come and do this performance trial. And I was doing these um, rowing machine tests every week anyway, and I was like, well, I might as well go and do this study and get paid to do these tests and maybe like learn something new. And so that's how I first tried ketone drinks. So um, yeah, by that point, I was you know interested in human physiology and what I could do to optimize my performance, but this was my first sort of exposure to, to ketones directly. Mm-hmm. Um, back at the time, this was probably in 2008, 2009, so it was still quite early um, for ketone, like the keto diet wasn't particularly trendy, ketone drinks were not really available on the market, and this one that I was uh, in a study of was a ketone ester, mm-hmm. and it was um, very, very bitter tasting and they were trying to make it taste better and they put it in like a protein shake. So it was quite thick and chocolatey, but still really bitter. And I had to drink a whole shaker full of this drink. And then about 30 minutes later, go on the rowing machine. Um, and I remember they had two drinks and one, you didn't know which one you were getting. And I remember after one of the tests, I did my season's best, um, performance on this rowing machine test. And I remember being like, wow, this is kind of interesting because you don't know at the time, found out after the study obviously that was with the ketone drink and subsequently in that study we had someone break a world record and a number of people set personal best and seasons best on the the test where they were using the ketone drink so um my experience was fairly typical it was kind of cool you just feel like you felt like you were having your kind of best day and i would do these tests week after week and you knew when you get to halfway whether you were feeling like you were kind of like hanging on or whether you were pushing on mm-hmm. and i remember that day getting to halfway and just being like, wow, you know, I've got a lot more in the tank and could just really like step up through, through the test. So that was, that was a pretty cool first introduction. And so I had to, as part of my medical training, do a little bit of research. Um, and so I got back in touch with the people who were running those experiments and I was like, can I come and be an intern in the lab for a little bit of time? Um, and they said yes. And that was my first involvement sort of on the other end of the, of the needle as it were, rather than being a participant actually helping to run the experiments. Um, and so then as, as I was finishing up my first part of my medical training, my rowing was also going really well. I won the under 23 rowing world rowing championships. So I was a world championship at age group level and the senior team had invited me to come and train um, on some of their training camps. And so I really wanted to be able to pursue that. But I knew that when I started the next phase of my medical training, I'd be in hospitals and maybe doing like some late nights or I'd be in different locations around, not, not in Oxford. So it'd be difficult for me to train. And so I asked if I could push back that for one year just to see if I could make it in the senior team. Um, and while I was doing that, I went back to my, my friends at the ketone lab. I was like, Hey, you know, I've done this internship with you. Can I come and help you process samples and help you recruit and help you run the studies? Um, you know, as a part-time research assistant while I'm doing the rowing and they said yes. And, um, that was what ended up sort of, that was what kicked off me ending up doing my PhD because the rowing continued to go well. I was on the senior, got onto the senior team and represented Great Britain for three consecutive years, um, silver and a gold medal, and then was also able to do my PhD at the same time. Uh, because when you're doing a PhD, you can set your own hours a little bit and um, it's a bit more flexible. So that's kind of the story of how I ended up in the space and I ended up with my PhD and um, with some rowing medals. But then just, it was again, more 
great luck and great timing, I guess, was just as I was finishing my PhD, um, the company here in San Francisco, HVMN, was um, making a partnership with my research advisor, Professor Kieran Clark, and she was one of the co-inventors of this ketone ester, and she um, could say who she wanted to bring it to market. And so mm. the company here um, managed to make a good partnership with her, and then they needed someone to come along and be kind of an expert on the ground. And so that's that's when I made the move over to the states. Um, and since then, I retired from rowing, which um, it was after a bit of time, I guess I was ready to to take a step back there. But now I do Ironman triathlon, so I still still keep pretty fit. Um, and with HVMN, I am sort of responsible for directing and forming collaborations with. Um, researchers who are interested in using the ketone drink so I have a big focus in on human performance and resilience with a sort of specific interest in the military um, we work with um, yeah, the Department of Defense looking to see how ketones might help help performance in extreme environments hmm. well yeah that's that is like really crazy crazy story or a huge journey and uh, it's, 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 it's funny to see that you got into the field uh, kind of based based upon like uh, your own personal experience, like you mentioned that you did the rowing test without knowing like uh, how how do the ketones affect your performance, and you saw like an improvement. So it is quite interesting that yeah you you kind of got bit by the bug or something like that, and uh, kind of yeah. w- went into the rabbit hole. But were you following like uh, a ketogenic diet back then, or um, did you kind of start it after that? So actually, it was interesting because um, yeah, like I said, the ketogenic diet wasn't super in fashion then. So I was, I mean, it was my first year at university at that stage. So I was kind of drinking and mm. I would sit and eat like a bag of chips as I was writing an essay. I was, you know, I was like not, not, I was very athletic and fit, but I wouldn't say I had the healthiest diet. I mean, I did eat healthily, but I snacked and I wasn't on a low carb diet. So I definitely didn't come at it from that background. But then in that time frame, so just as I was like studying ketones more and getting into it, I actually made a switch from being an open weight rower. So there was no um, like, no limit on how how much you could weigh and um, because I'm not too tall and not too strong I decided I was going to compete at the lightweight category so it meant that I had to be 125 pounds or 57 kilograms and that's sort of like uh, a good a good amount lighter than my natural body weight maybe like 25 to 30 pounds or um, like 10 kilograms or so Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had to lose that weight I had to start paying a lot more attention to what I was eating and I would say that the problem with trying to use a ketogenic diet was that I didn't have very much control over my training program. So if you're going to go and put yourself on a ketogenic diet, you have to have time to adapt properly. Right. And it can take, you know, six weeks, if you're lucky, longer and longer. I mean, I think that Dr. Volek and Dr. Finney are the mm-hmm. world experts on this. And they say that some athletes take months and months and months to really adapt. Um, so I never had that time. Like my season, the rowing season, every year you have to be reselected for the team so there would be assessments every like two or three months and so I never had the time to fully get on a ketogenic diet but I was much much more mindful about the timing of my carbohydrate intake and um, especially my actual eating windows as well so I shifted my lunch my my lunch being my main meal I had because I would train in the morning so I would have breakfast and lunch and then just very small dinner and quite early as well and then try and have a like prolonged fasting window as well from from that um and then making sure that i strategically use carbohydrates around like higher more um more demanding higher intensity more demanding sessions um but the thing is as well if you think about a rowing race rowing races are typically between six to eight minutes long so they're quite power 
based mm. and quite anaerobic. Mm. We did a lot of um, aerobic based training. So I would train 20 to 24 hours a week. And a lot of it was just sort of low intensity, which is kind of weird when you think that the sport itself, it's mainly about strength endurance. So it, it's not necessarily the, a type of sport that would benefit hugely from a ketogenic diet. You don't need to be able to oxidize um, fat too much in the same way that you do, I do now for Ironman triathlon. So my nutrition has, has changed since, um, since I was rowing. But it's, it was kind of cool because I was starving myself to be a lightweight and probably in ketosis a fair bit of the time. And I can see that now when I measure my blood ketone levels, I'm pretty, like it doesn't take me much time of fasting to get into ketosis. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, in that period of time where I was cutting down weight and getting down to like 10% body fat, I really did end up programming, program, programming myself to be quite metabolically flexible mm -hmm. um, without necessarily being on a ketogenic diet. Yeah, I, I totally agree that it does take like a longer bit of time to uh, become more keto adapted. And uh, like you said, that the longer you do it, then uh, that's going to be more pronounced in a sense that the body mitochondria will become like more, more efficient at using ketones and fatty acids for fuel. And mm -hmm. also, also like, I would also like to think that you don't necessarily need to be like uh, on a keto, keto diet consistently all the time to reap the benefits of the keto adaptation. You just have yeah. to kind of build up the mitochondrial density with like yeah. time-restricted eating, uh, with uh, keto dieting and uh, doing some sort of uh, exercise. So yeah, the metabolic flexibility is still like the best part of even like improving uh, the uh, glycolytic uh, exercise, like like sprinting and like those rowing. So I think that although you weren't like in keto all the time, it's the kind of periods of lower carb intake and such, they did help to kind of become more, even like more better at uh, that like uh, anaerobic rowing. Yeah. I was um, at a science meeting yesterday and I was talking to a group of scientists who are looking at um, cell senescence. And so you can take a drug and it will um, kill off senescent cells. And they were saying, and I think this is a problem that applies to the ketogenic diet as well, that they don't really know how long you need to do the intervention to get the maximum benefit. So do you need to take the senolytic every day for the rest of your life? Or do you just need to take it one day a year? Or do you need to take it every month you know like for the ketogenic diet just like you were just saying do is a period of ketosis of um you know if you did one or two weeks of ketosis every couple of months or every month for example or even cyclical keto where you eat keto during the week and then not at the weekends like how what is the dose minimum dose threshold let's just mm. call it for being in ketosis that's going to give you the adaptations that you're looking for and i i guess my answer to that would be well it depends what adaptations you're looking for yeah. because um there's some studies that have looked at um muscle enzymatic activities so and this isn't mitochondrial density or anything like that and they've shown that even in four days you can make some of those big switches to fat adaptation but that's not consistent with the more experiential evidence from a lot of athletes that say it takes much longer than that to get the adaptation and then as you were saying there's mitochondrial um, density there's actual changes inside the mitochondria themselves and all of these things are going to have different time courses but as scientists it's just really it's difficult enough designing it or getting the field to run consistent experiments with like a real ketogenic diet or you know like even getting like a basic level of consistency is difficult so if you start making the the exposure different by having you know oh 
Um, for, I think fasting is another really interesting example of that because there's like alternate day fasting, time restricted eating, um, and an alternate day fast might be on the fasting day you have 500 calories versus a water fast. You know, there's all these different ways of doing it, and the terminology is kind of similar. So the minute we have a term like cyclical keto or periodic keto or something like that, it's so vague yeah. that there's going to be a lot of different ways of doing it. So um, I think that you're right. And I think that the truth is that there's probably, you can probably drop in periods of exposure to anything and get some benefit. You probably don't need to be on it all the time, but we just don't like, there's very little like good evidence. And so that's why I think self-experimentation is kind of interesting because you can work out what works for yourself. Yeah. I think that there's this, uh, you know, a group of words that can describe it which is like it's context dependent and it's always going to vary like uh, b based upon like the individual what kind of a diet do they have and what's their metabolic status are they insulin resistant or are they like a high level athlete so it's yeah. very context dependent and in, in the in the studies themselves yeah like there's def there's a lot of misconceptions or not misconceptions but let's say Miss miss uh, miss terminology if that's the, if that's the good way, way of putting it like yeah, yeah time restricted eating intermittent fasting alternative fasting extended fasting as well as like low carb diets and keto diet ketogenic diets they are very different and there's gonna be like a different degree of uh, effect as well or the different type of results so even like even like you know in mainstream um, nutrition advice a low carb diet is already something that's lower than 50% of your daily calories coming from carbs, which isn't actually like a low carb. I would say that's like a near moderate to high carb diet even. So it's definitely very, very context dependent. Yeah. And it's just perpetuated because it's not even just a problem in science. It's perpetuated by bloggers and, and you know, information services that are not particularly nuanced. And one term that, and I, I hope you'll let me take the opportunity to like clarify one of my like personal bugbears. I feel like a lot of people use the word ketosis, um, what I would consider wrong, because I think it's kind of a confusing term, especially when you have exogenous ketones in the mix as well. So yeah, people think that exogenous ketones don't get you into real ketosis because they conflate the process of ketogenesis and ketosis. So for me, I would say exogenous ketones don't promote ketogenesis, but they do promote ketosis. And I think if you read a lot of them, um, you know, if you went just on the internet and typed what is ketosis, people would be like, ketosis is burning fat. And it's like, well, yeah. up until the point where you could sort of separate off those two processes, because up until ketone drinks, you did have to be burning fat to be in ketosis mm -hmm. because you had to be burning fat to make ketones and raise your blood ketone levels. But now it's like you can have elevated ketone levels and it doesn't have anything to do with burning fat or making ketones. You can just have, it's like, a, like hyperglycemia. It's just like hyperketonemia hyper is probably a more descriptive term. Mm -hmm. But the word ketosis, it's kind of this like magical state where you're, you know, I don't know, I just think it's, <laughs> it's a very misused term, not only in the science, but also in popular media. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, you don't need to be in ketosis to burn fat but uh, like the same way that you don't need to necessarily uh, have elevated levels of ketones to be keto adapted, so to say that, you know, you, don't, you, you accidentally eat a bit of more carbs, which will knock you out of ketosis, but you won't necessarily lose like your keto adaptation. You can simply yeah. like resume and go back into ketosis after a few hours. So there's definitely like a mis misinterpretations of these, ter of these terms and people use them uh, quite yeah, out of context. Yeah. So I think that's a personal, like, I think it's important to keep having the discussion around what we actually mean with the words. And then maybe, you know, may, maybe my definition or the definition that I'm applying here is like not the one that will stick, but mm. I think 
um, it's the responsibility of the people who are um, like writing the scientific literature and making presentations and stuff to try and like clarify people around like what is a ketogenic diet what is ketosis and then everyone can use the terms correctly yeah for sure uh maybe let's let's go back to the performance side so um you have like a background in rowing uh but what kind of sports would you say are like best uh for a keto diet so, I mean, again, this is going to be different with keto diets and ketone drinks. Um, so for keto, um, keto dieting, it really depends, I think, on the athlete. So, I mean, like the, the um, stock answer is the longer the event that you're competing in, the more likely you are to be able to benefit from keto adaptation. So typically, I mean, you'd probably be saying a minimum of a, ma- a marathon, I guess, or you know maybe something like uh, Grand Tour cycling or something like that. You're going to start to be benefiting from, from keto adaptation. Although I do see the point of people who say that at the most elite level, um, even in the marathon and um, and multi-day cycling races, you still need to have some degree of carbohydrate metabolism going on to just meet and sustain the needs, the the, the rate of ATP production for that kind of sport. Because these people they're putting out. It's not even the amount of energy over the day which could be met with fat. It's the rate. And I think this is something that people kind of um, misunderstand a little bit. So if you think about the pathway of carbohydrate metabolism versus the pathway of fat metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism is quite a lot simpler and it can proceed in the cytoplasm as well as in the mitochondria, whereas beta oxidation and fat metabolism can only proceed in the mitochondria and there's many steps of cleavage of fat metabolism in, in, in that process. So I think that I can see why even just from like a pathway architecture level that to generate ATP very quickly, which you need to do to produce a lot of watts, carbohydrates are important. But then you, so then this takes me back to, okay, it actually depends on the athlete because 99.999% of people are not competing in the Tour de France or are not uh, trying to break two hours on a marathon. Most people are doing, you know, a century ride at the weekend or trying to run a marathon in like four hours or maybe people are training for trail races it's a little bit more it's it's a different level of exertion a different level of competition that applies to most of the rest of us even if we're competing seriously so i think that for those people where the win lose isn't going to be decided by a 100 meter like sprint to the line and where or where there's not going to be these repeated absolutely maximal efforts throughout say the day i think that being on a lower carbohydrate ketogenic diet and being fat fat adapted and keto adapted is going to be beneficial because typically those people are also not as good at fueling so if you look back at when elliot kachuge broke the world record for the marathon recently his nutrition was absolutely like he had someone giving him carbs in a bottle like every, I, don't, I can't remember, I don't know the exact figure, but it was, it was the subject of some news reports afterwards because you should go back and watch the guy who was his bottle guy was following him on a bike. And every time he managed, made a successful handoff, he had like, a, he had a little fist pump and this great little montage of this guy being super happy. But for, this, for that race where he probably was getting somewhere between 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate an hour, but that was only possible because he was really diligent, taking a very good, um, like formulation of drink and had help making sure that he get it. But most of us, when we run a marathon, we'll see a water station, maybe we'll stop, maybe we won't. They're not like at regular intervals. So for most people, optimal fueling is just not possible or it's not practical. So in that case, um, being more fat adapted 
is or having the threshold at which you're still burning fat higher is a big advantage because you're not going to be bonking as, mm. as easily. So I think if you take into consideration that most people aren't elite, that most people's during race nutrition isn't able to deliver the gold standard of, even if you try and you slam back lots of goo shots, most people don't do that right and they'll end up with an upset stomach and it's not, you know, it's not ideal. So I think for most, you know, actually the bulk of people who are competing from recreationally through to like semi-serious fat adaptation and, and the lower carb, at least periods of lower carbohydrate training, it's going to be very beneficial. And then keto drinks are like a whole other thing altogether because you don't have to change your diet to, to use them. Hmm. So you tap into energy from carbs and ketones at the same time. Yeah, it's quite, fu quite funny that uh, one thing that I just thought of is that, you know, all, all, a lot of these most professional athletes, they use these different, uh, you know, uh, glucose drinks and carb gels during their uh, events, which you can actually consider to be like a performance enhancing stimulant mm -hmm. or something like that. <laughs> and if we were to like try to rank people based upon their like athletic uh, abilities, then you would actually be want to consider the fact that they are using exogenous aids uh, for the event, so to say, and it kind of defeats, defeats the purpose of looking at the person's natural abilities, so to say. And yeah, that's really that, interesting. Well. Yeah, that, that, that can go into another rabbit hole of looking at, okay, what kind of, uh, you know, substances do we allow in professional events to be used and uh, what, what, which, do, which ones do we co consider like quote-unquote unnatural because everything that is outside of keto adaptation can be considered like an unnatural performance enhancing uh, like substance. Mm, I mean, yeah, you're, you're so right. We've got caffeine. Um, I mean, but if you're going to be that extreme, what about water? Right. I mean, I mean, it's, and that's very interesting, like politically as well, you know, like people um, like to say that like the sports drinks companies encourage people to over drink. And actually, if you look at people who um, win these races, often they lose quite a lot of water during the races and they're still, they could be classified as dehydrated and they're still performing really well. So I think, I mean, the idea of running a marathon with nothing, no water, no food, no fuel, that would be an interesting, very, very pure test of, mental and physical ability yeah. that would be unlike anything i think has ever been seen before maybe we should maybe we should try and like organize a race like that yeah for sure but there are like a lot of uh, these uh keto adapted athletes who are doing like crazy endurance events uh like a few rowers also like the i, I believe like the recent ones that i heard was this british rowing team who rowed across the atlantic i think yeah. in like record yeah. time and they, they ate like some some sort of fat adapted diet so that's mm -hmm. like a good example of uh like you, that the keto diet is really good for like ultra endurance and also like zach bitter from the states yeah. he does like a, a low carb keto diet most of the time and yeah. he he broke like the 100 mile record in record time i think and um jeff browning he won um 200 mile races within like two weeks on a low carb yeah. diet as well i think that starts to get interesting because it's not just about the fuel for the body and performance during the during the race it's also about the ability to recover right. um races because a lot of people uh, feel that being on a low-carb ketogenic diet is anti-inflammatory and helps with um, helps with muscle recovery as well um, one thing I definitely have seen is that generally older athletes seem to feel and perform better relatively on the ketogenic diet um, and I, I think there's definitely a big unanswered question around exactly how does our metabolism change with age um, and and I think if you reflect on dietary guidelines, not just for the general population, but also for athletes, they tend to try and create one set of rules that applies 
broadly not necessarily to everyone but um maybe in sport there's a little bit more nuance about like a power power sports versus endurance sports there is some some nuance but i don't think within that that there's then nuance about age and you know there's this in in the uk we call it middle age spread but you know you just kind of like get get fatter as you get older like you put on weight but stuff about your physiology your hormones and your metabolism changes so we should consider that maybe a ketogenic diet is is actually exactly what um, a slightly older athlete needs compared with, you know, a teenager who can, who can eat all of the, like I did, you know, mm. certainly mm-hmm. like all the rubbish and still stay in shape. Yeah. I think that's also going to catch up. So to say that although those athletes are jugging down those, uh, glucose gels, it's, it's still going to be not optimal and it's going to cause like excess inflammation in the long term. So <laughs> a keto diet yeah. is definitely much more, uh, sustainable in the long term. Uh, but 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 have you have you seen like some uh, research in uh, the power athletes and uh, like strength strength sports using keto diets? It yeah. tends to focus in on um, optimizing body composition. So I think a lot of people who are um, against the ketogenic diet say that there's always a loss of power. And I would say that from the literature that I've seen, that like sometimes that's the case, but not all of the time. There's definitely been a few studies recently where power has not been compromised, and actually because of the better body composition, more fat mass loss the power to weight is actually better in some of these athletes so i think that and we see you know a lot of um, athletes eating in a low carb ketogenic pattern for say crossfit or something like that and um so i I wouldn't say that the two are completely incompatible it certainly looks that you can at least maintain power probably improve power to weight um using a ketogenic diet yeah, I think like uh, you don't need like a bunch of extra. You don't you don't need to be like on a high carb diet to do things like powerlifting or weightlifting, uh, or even like gymnastics or those things. That because the the kind of exertion it it is intense and uh, like it is explosive, but it's not like there's not the endurance component combined together with like what you see in CrossFit that would like require more glycolytic uh, pathways and more uh, glucose to be like for recovery, like faster recovery and so on. But for most people who are doing like a strength-based regular type of weightlifting then uh, even then even then they don't need like extra carbs because they, they kind of they, they're still performing at a like a low they're they're performing at a, like enough rate for uh being able to recover by just eating like a keto diet yeah i mean i think it's interesting the interesting point you just make is i think people think that you have to eat carbs to replenish carbs but actually through mm. the process gluconeogenesis not only recycling say lactate that you produce within the body from carbohydrates and making that back into glycogen but you can also make new glycogen from for example um glycerol um Mm. and proteins as well um and uh, at the meeting that you and i were at the metabolic health summit dr volek did an excellent uh, made an excellent couple of slides about um husky dogs Mm -hmm. and how that they would eat all meat diet and run for hundreds of you know tens of hundreds of miles a day and um, still maintain their glycogen levels because of this ability to make glycogen from other carbohydrate from other substrates. So um, yeah. I think, you know, you pr- at first, firstly, one thing is that a ketogenic diet is not a zero carb diet. There is always like, unless you're on like carnivore, mm-hmm. if you're eating some kind of like leafy greens or, you know, there's, there's, there's small amounts of carbohydrate in anything. So you're typically getting some carbohydrate um, and then, um yeah i think yeah you you don't you don't even need to eat anything uh, to replenish your glycogen like even just by fasting 
you can still convert your body fat and uh, into like glycogen by converting that glycerol into glycogen through group energogenesis. So yeah, <laughs> it's not going to be optimal though. It's not yeah. going to help. It's not going to recover, sure, very, sure. recover very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's there's a balance. Um, you definitely don't need for for muscle protein synthesis. Mm-hmm. You don't need carbohydrate. You need branch chain amino acids, particularly leucine. To, mm-hmm. to trigger that response um so proteins if you want to get stronger protein is always going to be more important and there's not um from from what i'm aware it's like a little bit the jury's still out as whether you if having carbs with it and boosting insulin really does move the needle that much in terms of protein synthesis but um you know in mm-hmm. that regard i would say i think that people tend to think that weightlifting is less demanding than it actually is you can really deplete quite a lot of glycogen depending on the the session that you're doing if you're doing reps to exhaustion to failure you can really burn through glycogen um as much as if you were doing an exhaustive endurance kind of um protocol so i don't just don't know that many people push themselves that hard in the weight weight through yeah yeah that's true uh so for for what i like to say to people is that like a baseline you would still want to eat like a lower carb keto diet but at the same time you can still can I adjust your carb intake based upon your uh, physique uh, requirements and what kind of uh, exercises you're doing? So yeah, like they kind of either do like some some form of a cyclical type of approach, or uh, even do like the targeted keto diet where you, you like consume some carbs for a particular workout and so on. So you can still maintain the metabolic flexibility, which is I say, it's it's still more optimal for general health as well to be able to like swap uh, fuel sources and not become like uh, too dependent of keto even. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about how we evolved as a species, we'd have gone through like periods of fasting and, and less abundant food and periods of plenty. So I think trying to find one rule that works is, is the, the golden rule that you should always follow at all times is kind of a little bit um, misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Being able to be flexible across the board with all things is probably, mm. probably healthiest. How would you, how would you like uh, go about uh, adding carbs to a keto diet? Well, I mean, it, again, it depends on where you're working out, I guess, first of all. Um, so are we talking about an athlete or are we talking about just a regular, a regular person that's maybe like a casual gym goer or what kind of, into, into what kind of keto diet? Mm, yeah, for sure. Uh, but you mentioned that earlier that uh, during, if, you're, if you're not eating a keto diet, then using the ketone drinks or the exogenous ketones can also be helping to gain the benefits of keto adaptation for like the short period. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so I mean, I guess like I would start by saying I, it, that I don't think it's necessarily giving you the benefits of keto adaptation because the benefits of, to, to me, when, when someone says the benefits of keto adaptation, I think about um, increased fat mobilization from, from adipose tissue. I think about long, long-term changes that have generated more mitochondria um, and you know, changes to the mitochondrial structure, all of those things which we kind of discussed earlier, as well as, well as the, and then also the provision of ketones as a fuel. But that's kind of, that's a downstream product of all of those other things for me. As well as when you drink a ketone drink, you're not, um, you're not upregulating fat re- mobilization. You're, if, because it's just acute, you won't instantly get those increased mitochondria, mitochondrial number or like mitochondrial structural changes, but you do get, energy from ketones that switches the balance of fuels that you're oxidizing during exercise so if you're a mixed diet athlete and you have exogenous ketones before you go and 
uh, you know, run a marathon, let's just say, in the first hour, hour and a half of that marathon, you're going to be burning through ketones are pref preferentially oxidized and sort of slow down the use of other fuel sources. So in that period of time where you have ketones in the body, you're burning them preferentially. And then as they start to run out, you're carbohydrate wise, you're in the state that you would have been when you started. So there's this profound glycogen space effect and we also see lower levels of blood lactate as well and lactate is sort of a byproduct of accelerated carbohydrate metabolism so we can really see that the body is prefer when they're present the body prefers to burn ketones even if you're on all of our studies were done on athletes uh, on a normal mixed diet so even if you're not even if you're not keto adapted you can burn ketones at a rate that's sort of meaningful and it changes your metabolism in a way that's meaningful for sort of subsequent performance so um i think there's a, an open question around if regular use of ketone drinks would have uh, like a keto adaptation effect mm -hmm. but for for a one-off use or you know once every week or whatever it's it's kind of acute and it's it's like taking a goo shot you know, when you take right. a shot, you deliver carbohydrates in a rapidly available form to the body and the body can oxidize those, except this is like ketones. Um, and they're not only, you know, they're kind of interesting because they're sort of more efficient fuel source as well for the mitochondria. So you kind of get not only um, energetic benefits on the mitochondrial level, but sort of on the whole body substrate level you're sparing glycogen and ha having that available for later on in the exercise as well. And, you know, another thing which I, we don't really know about yet, but I suspect is important is um, the effects of ketones on the brain during exercise as well. Mm. Because ketones actually evolved to be a fuel for the brain. And so if you deliver someone a big bolus of ketones, I think a lot of people feel more lucid or more focused or um, their perception of effort is altered. And we know now through um, Samuel Marcora's work and, and Tim Noakes' work as well, where they don't get on, like the importance of the, of the brain in determining endurance mm. so, um, or performance even. So mm. I think that that's a, a question that's as yet unanswered um, that I would love to see, you know, what's the relative effect of ketones on the brain mm. there as well. So, yes. um, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's keto adaptation, but it's right. benefits of ketone metabolism for sure, acutely. Yeah. So the effects would be that, yeah, you, you, you become more uh, glycogen sparing and your body would preserve that glycogen for like the near maximum effort where it actually needs it. And yeah. uh, it's, in, in so doing, it's going to help with uh, performance in the long term. And you, you're not going to bunk because of that. Like on a carb-based athlete who isn't keto adapted, then they're burning glycogen uh, quite, quite rapidly just because their body isn't able to produce ketones or pick them up. So yeah. uh, that's why the keto adaptation is very useful for postponing the wall or pushing off the wall where the kind of drop off occurs. Yeah, mm. no, you're right. You're right. What, 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 what's, what's the difference between the ketone salts and ketone esters? Yeah. I mean, so in terms of structure, a ketone salt, it has got, typically they have the ketone body beta hydroxybutyrate. So the body, body makes beta hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate and acetone. And those are the three physiological ketone bodies that we make. And um, ketone drinks tend to focus in on beta hydroxybutyrate because it's more stable than acetoacetate. Um, and it's, so it's easier to formulate. Mm -hmm. So ketone salt would have beta hydroxybutyrate bound to a mineral, and that's typically sodium, potassium or calcium at this stage. Um, and a ketone ester has beta hydroxybutyrate bound by an ester bond to another ketone precursor. So there's no salt load with a ketone ester. Um, one other thing that tends to be different between 
the ketone ester that I've been working on in ketone salts is that in nature, there's this property called chirality, which means that there are left-handed and right-handed forms of molecules. So beta-hydroxybutyrate has a left-handed and right-handed form. And I like to think of it as it has like four fingers and a thumb, like our left and our right hand, but they just don't overlay on one another. They're structurally, structurally the same, but also not the same. And our bodies make one specific form called D, beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's the one that our liver makes, and that's the one that is circulates in our blood. Um, but when you do a reaction on a lab bench, you end up with a mixture of the, the D form and what's called the L form, so the left and right-handed forms. And so as part of my PhD, I looked at what happens when you drink a salt that is a mixture, and you see that uh, both go up, and then our body burns this the natural form, the D form, and that goes down quite quickly within a few hours. But this unnatural form, the form that we don't make, it stays elevated for sort of eight to 10 hours. So it's showing that it's not being used as a fuel in the same way as the D form. So um, unless it's specified on the product, those are salt, ketone salts are typically mixtures, but I know that now they're getting technology to be able to separate those out. Um, so that might be something um, in the future that's that's more equivalent. Um, but one other thing that I've seen is maybe maybe because of this mixture-ness of it, but you don't tend to be able to get as high levels of BHB um, of ketones with salt ingestion. Um, typically, even when I double, so in my PhD, I looked at escalating doses and even going with double the manufacturer's recommended dose, that didn't double the level of ketones that I was getting. So the recommended dose, I think we were getting like 0 0.8, 0 0.7, 0 0.8. And then with double the dose, it was more like one millimolar. So a very small extra increase for really a quite a big increase in what you're consuming and i think that part of that's because these solutions the salt mit, drink itself then gets to be very concentrated and it's difficult to absorb from the gut right. um and it does have like a slightly higher risk of causing diarrhea and things like that so all of the there are now in the last sort of 18 months two years there's sort of been like five five to eight studies on salts come out like there, there's increasing publications looking at how if they might have physical or cognitive effects and none of them have seen an effect yet and i suspect that part of that is because they can't get the ketone levels sort of sufficiently high to be a really meaningful fuel substrate and the other thing is per, per, my personal experience when i drink sodium bicarbonate which is a salt of bicarbonate is that when you drink a really salty solution that it affects it gives me a headache and i sort of retain a lot of water and so i think for athletes drinking that much mineral you need a little bit like you think about if you think about the size of a hydration tablet like an effervescent tablet that you might drop in a bottle you need like that much salt you don't need you know tablespoons and tablespoons it's going to make you feel a bit off so there hasn't been any i don't think i've seen any studies where performance has been enhanced with a ketone salt yet um as well as with ketone esters it's looking a little bit more like uh, not only can you get levels higher because if you increase the dose of ketone ester, you can get higher levels of ketone. So compared to like one millimole with salt, you can get up to five millimolar with ketone ester. Um, and we, so we've seen performance um, improvements there um, in a couple of studies now and also started to see, starting to see work come out around how they affect recovery as well. Mm. So I think maybe because it's just more powerful, it's, it's working better at this stage. Um, but I mean, there's certainly downsides to ketone esters. They taste very strong and they're very still quite expensive to manufacture. Mm -hmm. All of those things are kind of solvable, hopefully. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. I think I think with the with the salts, most of the kind of effects or the benefits people experience come from the electrolytes <laughs> that they get, like the potassium and magnesium and sodium in like this packaged uh, powder form. And mm-hmm. the beta hydroxybutyrate is simply there for the ride because, yeah, like I said, I myself don't really feel the difference between having like. 0.3 millimoles of ketones versus 1.0 millimoles or something i would simply five then yeah. you feel it yeah i would yeah i i i only start to notice these things when they are like about three and uh, between five and so on so yeah that's it's definitely like a diff- difference between the effect or let's say let's say like the dose dose of the these these, these different things a lot of other commercial salt products put caffeine in there as well mm. so <laughs> um, it was one of the research studies that was published and it was like I think there might have been like a small swing in favor of the salts, but they had caffeine in it. It's like, well, caffeine, we know caffeine improves performance, so you can't really like say anything about, about that study. Yeah. And really, I think you raise an interesting point. The, these studies should be controlled by uh, just table salt, right? Like, or they should match the mineral, mineral composition between um, like a ketone arm and a placebo arm to really see whether it's the minerals or whether it's the, the BHB that's making a difference. So um, I think, you know, the esters, um, so there's uh, the BHB ester that I worked on that I said it's like BHB joined to a BHB precursor, but there are other compounds that are being developed. So for example, Dr. Dom D'Agostino at USF, he has um, a compound, an ester that has acetoacetate in it as well. Um, and I think it's really, I find it so interesting because I think that um, not all ketone supplements are going to be used for the same things. So um, Dr. D'Agostino's ester has shown to be, has been shown to be super effective at seizure, seizure reduction. And we actually think that that's because acetoacetate um, conversion to, and conversion to acetone is the sort of ketone pathway that has more uh, central effects on the brain, as well as beta-hydroxybutyrate, that's better for providing energy, say, for athletes or in a situation where energy metabolism is more kind of critical. Um, and actually, there was one study, so there's you know, limited studies on ketone esters as well, but Dr. D'Agostino's ester was studied by a research group in Australia, and they found no performance difference. And I think um, not, not only is that maybe because acetoacetate is maybe less good than beta-hydroxybutyrate, but also that um, the liquid that they gave them to drink made all of the cyclists really, really sick. So you couldn't really separate out like, performance effects from the fact that the athletes who drank the ketone drink were like dry retching and um, very nauseated. So right. um, not only do these things have to be tolerable for not only athletes, but also the, the general public as well, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's diff- subtle differences between not only dose, but whether you're giving DHB or acetoacetate and all of these things as well. So I could kind of imagine a future where there'll be um, ketone esters that are targeted for athletes, ketone esters that are targeted for divers or people with epilepsy, ketone compounds that are targeted where you could take one a day and it would elevate your ketone levels all day. And that might be what you'd use if you had neurodegeneration because you don't want to be drinking like multiple, you don't want multiple spikes, you just want one consistent level. So I think um, in the future, the field will be like much more nuanced around different formulations for different use cases. Mm-hmm. How would it affect uh, like uh, fat burning in, in, in the context of trying to lose uh, weight? I think this is, again, one of the most common uh, misunderstood areas. So what we've seen consistently with esters and salt, all of the ester and salt studies to date, is that when you uh, exogenously raise ketones, in the short term anyway, 
you decrease fat mobilization. And biologically, that actually makes sense because it's how our body regulates ketone production. So if we go back to bio 101, you're fasting, your lipolysis goes up, you have high plasma-free fatty acids, and then after time, those free fatty acids get converted into ketones. And then the next step is that ketones themselves feed back and have a negative inhibition on lipolysis to make sure that lipolysis doesn't spiral out of control mm. and ketone production spirals out of control. So it's, mm. it's not that, that natural mechanism isn't designed to shut down, which completely shut off ketone production, but it is designed to, to um, generate a plateau. So if you look at ketone levels of people who fast for 40 days, there is a plateau between sort of six to eight millimolar. It doesn't continue to spiral like with diabetic ketoacidosis where they get to 20 millimolar. So our body has this natural mechanism to, to keep ketones at the right level, moderate right. level. And so if you drink ketones without, so you don't have elevated fatty acids, you drink ketones, they still have this negative feedback inhibition effect on lipolysis. Right. So in, in the short term, it's actually shutting down fat, fat burning in the classical mm -hmm. sense. It's, it's not shutting down fat oxidation. In fact, interestingly, um, from some of our work looking at muscle biopsies, it looks like it actually increases fat oxidation in the muscle. So it looks like you can, this is why fat burning is a really, really bad thing. Yeah. Is it, are you talking about fat release or are you talking about fat oxidation? So we'll, we'll use the proper terms. So it looks like ketones might be able to accelerate fat oxidation in tissues of the body, but we know that ketones suppress, ketones suppress lipolysis and fat release and fat mobilization in the periphery. So if someone's trying to lose weight, I would say they probably need to be met that it's not gonna, ketone drinks are not gonna shortcut um, being in a caloric deficit and watching your macronutrient intake. Ketone drinks don't melt fat off your belly just by drinking drink. However, they will help you to transition onto that kind of diet where it might otherwise be difficult. And it is a carb-free, um, you know, insulin-spike-free source of energy if you're on that kind of diet and you want energy to work out or energy to sit at your desk or do a presentation or something like that. So that, that's in terms of the metabolism. On top of that, though, what we have seen is that these drinks in the short term can affect the hormones associated with appetite. And so a lot of people who follow a ketogenic diet report feeling more satiated and we actually believe from some of my own work that that's directly caused by elevating ketones so it may make it um, easier to adhere to a caloric deficit by having elevated levels of ketones potentially through a drink but but you know the one of the underlying things is these drinks do contain calories um mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't know whether salt companies, ketone salt companies report calories from ketones on their label, but I know that on our, the label of our Ketonesta product, we have no calories from carbs, no calories from fat, no calories from protein, but 120 calories and all of those come from ketones. So it's like ketone drinks contain calories. They're not going to magically melt away fat, but they may increase your fat oxidation capacity, maybe, but that won't be a main mechanism of action. They may also help you to modulate your appetite but it's not like a magic weight loss elixir that's going to right. uh, shortcut any of anything else that you really need to do. It's, it's a, it's a tool, it's an aid. Right. Yeah. So like basically the, uh, the ketones, they simply help the body to start accepting ketones and start to uh, use like a ketone based metabolism and is, is it, it can be used like a transition thing in this, in the sense. Yes, for sure. I think that's exactly how to think about it. And then when you're, 
at, you know, maintenance level on that diet, you, you might want to use it strategically just to help with energy levels. I mean, I, could, I could, can see a world, ketones themselves are such an interesting metabolite, not just from a fuel provision point of view, but also from the many sort of signaling and epigenetic effects of ketones. They're an, they're an interesting thing to have in the body. So I could see a world where um, more people, even if they're not on a ketogenic diet, get some of their calories from ketones because if you, if you put, a, you know, say 120 or 360, you know, calories worth of ketones in every day and took that out of refined sugar and refined carbohydrate, um, I think that would be quite a helpful swap. So I could see ketones being an interesting macronutrient for people to be, to be deriving energy from and having in the body more regularly, regardless of their diet. Yeah, I would imagine that if I were to eat like a higher carb diet, then I would maybe consider taking those exogenous ketones every once in a while just to maintain this sort of a therapeutic uh, state uh, with higher levels of ketones. And, you know, the, like you mentioned earlier, like the, the benefits on the brain, the benefits on better appetite regulation and better, better blood sugar regulation as well. So, yeah, I would say that the ketones, they're actually, yeah, much, they, they, they will definitely come uh, in handy when you are doing like a carb based diet. And I would exactly. say, I would personally use them <laughs> even then. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think that um, we just have to understand it and continue to do the work to understand exactly how it's benefiting and affecting the body and what, what, what any trade-offs are. Um, but I could see a world where um, people consume calories from ketones every day. Right. Uh, what, what, what kind of a diet are you following uh, right now then? So right now I'm training for my Ironman. So I do a sort of a 24 hour fast once or twice a week. Uh, and on those days I try and, um, so I'll normally do it on days when my training is sort of like less intense, more like lower steady state stuff. Um, so yeah, typically once or twice a week, I try and do on top of that, if there are workouts that I can do fasted in the morning, I do try and do that as well. So I'm really trying to accelerate, um, fat metabolism and oxidation that's kind of thing i would say though there's still quite a lot of intensity in my program and and following my years of rowing i ended up with some hormonal imbalances from being so um such a low body fat for such a long period of time so there hasn't really yet been a time where i felt like it's right to go on like a full ketogenic diet because i know that that sort of it's difficult for the body to adapt to it. my body's still kind of figuring out where it is after sort of six years of international rowing so i'd say i eat like i eat carbohydrates but it's pretty targeted around my training sessions um and i definitely do periods of uh, carbohydrate restriction and time restricted kind of feeding as well to try and boost the adaptations that i'm getting with training but yeah my diet my diet was so restricted for so long to be like i was under 10 percent body fat for like three or four years and so i kind of like being able to go and have a pastry every now and again because <laughs> it was kind of difficult to, for a few for a number of years so and i you know i'm working out a lot so yeah i think uh, that's actually one of the privileges of the keto diet that if you do decide to have the pastry or eat some carbs then you're not going to necessarily suffer that much as the other person who is eating them on a consistent basis so (laughs) it's the infrequent i don't think anyone's going to argue that you should be eating a pastry every every single day i mean a lot of people do i think part of the problem is nowadays is that our expectations of what's normal to eat is kind Mm. of skewed and um so really we just need to kind of shift back into this balance of like eating eating when you need to eat eating as much as you need to eat eating for the activity that you're doing and most people go and they sit at a desk and they don't need to eat this like 
even like fruit laden like muffin cake they don't need to dr then drink the glass of orange juice with it that's going to like spike them and then bring them back down later i mean but then but then equally i think that people on the keto diet they not don't need to be pounding fat bombs every single morning or you know morning lunch and, and dinner so i think there's you know moderation and and um, context is really important to everything that you're eating whatever diet that you're eating but i would say that it's easier to eat less and be satiated and have steady levels of energy on a lower carb diet and i personally um i'll go through periods where so like a couple of weeks ago i experimented by just having um so my morning meal i always had like no carbs no regardless of the training that i was doing i would have like eggs and bacon and and I just had, I was full for most of the day. I had really, really steady energy. And so even though I was eating carbs, if I was working out again later in the day, um, it was it was kind of an interesting couple of weeks just to sort of see that stability that I got when I was yeah. really reducing my carbohydrate intake. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's, it's good advice. And I think it's a good way to start wrapping up the podcast as well. And thanks for coming to the podcast. Uh, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Ah, sure. So I am on Twitter at Brianna Stubbs, the company HVMN. We also have uh, Twitter and we share. I uh, do a monthly round, research roundup podcast so people can subscribe and I sort of pull, to part, pull apart a few science papers and I quite enjoy doing that. Um, then, yeah, I'm, I'm, unfortunately I'm not on Instagram. I haven't bowed to that kind of pressure yet. So Twitter is the best place to, to find me. Hmm, nice. Uh, and my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Gosh, you got to give people a bit of time to sort of think about. <laughs> um, I think for, for I found that habits are good for like a short period of time. So there's a lot of things that I've done and implemented and have really improved me, and I haven't like needed to carry on with them. So I find that from time to time, going into a period of where I meditate every day, but I'll do that for like two or three weeks, for example, and that really recenters me. And then a little bit, like I was saying a minute ago, a period where I eat low carbohydrate, or pick and do a low carbohydrate breakfast every day for a couple of weeks. So I think um, there doesn't have to be one golden rule, but like implement a change and see how it works in your life and don't be afraid to experiment, I guess, would be, would be the overarching advice because then you're going to learn about what works for you and you're going to develop an armory or like a toolkit of different things that you can in, then implement during your life and I think reflecting on my time as an athlete and as a researcher you you really fill that toolkit up with different strategies different mental strategies and different physical strategies as well that you can use to prepare and perform I mean what I would do to prepare and perform for a world championship final I don't need that every day now but now I know how to get my body ready to perform for a race or a marathon or whatever like that so all it's about um, I would say my advice to people would be to try and ex do everything you can to expand that toolkit because you don't need to be doing something all of the time to to know it, understand it, and then be able to implement it when you actually need it. And I think that's probably the, the greatest skill to be flexible and be able to to have the, the tools on hand for the demands that yeah. you're meeting in life. Yeah, it's like uh, being more adaptable and uh, being yeah. able to change <laughs> at will. Yeah. 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 I mean, and having done it a lot, you just build confidence that you can do that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming to the podcast and uh, really exciting uh, research. And I'm, uh, I'm hoping that 
you will definitely like uh, go deeper into more research coming out with the ketones and, and the performance. Yeah. So looking forward no, I to think it. There's, there's some good papers um, that I've sort of seen on, they'll be coming out soon and we're doing a lot of our own work as well. So I think it's a really exciting time for the field. Lots of expansion, lots of good science, lots of good user stories as well. So um, I think people should keep an eye on it. Mm, yeah, looking forward to it. And thanks. Uh, thank, thanks. All right, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Power podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.